Chapter four, section one of a practical view of the prevailing religious system by William Wilberforce. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Lillis. Chapter four, section one on the prevailing inadequate conceptions concerning the nature and the strictness of practical Christianity. One part of this title may perhaps on the first view excite some surprise in any one who may have drawn a hasty inference from the charges conveyed by the two preceding chapters. Such a one might be disposed to expect that they who have very low conceptions of the corruption of human nature would be proportionally less indulgent to human frailty, and that they who lay little stress on Christ's satisfaction for sin, or on the operations of the Holy Spirit, would be more high and rigid in their demands of diligent endeavors after universal holiness, since their scheme implies that we must depend chiefly on our own exertions and performances for our acceptance with God. But any such expectations as these would be greatly disappointed. There is in fact a region of truth and a region of errors. They who hold the fundamental doctrines of Scripture in their due force, hold also in its due degree of purity the practical system which Scripture inculcates. But they who explain away the former, soften down the latter also, and reduce it to the level of their own defective scheme. It is not from any confidence in the superior amount of their own performances, or in the greater vigor of their own exertions, that they reconcile themselves to their low views of the satisfaction of Christ, and of the influence of the Spirit but it should rather seem their plans so to depress the required standard of practice that no man need fall short of it, that no superior aid can be wanted for enabling us to attain it. It happens, however, with respect to their simple method of morality, as in the case of the short ways to knowledge of which some vain pretenders have vaunted themselves to be possessed. Despising the beaten track in which more sober and humble spirits have been content to tread, they have indulgently struck into new and untried paths, but these have failed of conducting them to the right object, and have issued only in ignorance and conceit. It seems in our days to be the commonly received opinion that provided a man admit in general terms the truth of Christianity, though he know not or consider not much concerning the particulars of the system, and if he be not habitually guilty of any of the grosser vices against his fellow-creatures, we have no great reason to be dissatisfied with him, or to question the validity of his claim to the name and the consequent privileges of a Christian." The title implies no more than a sort of formal general assent to Christianity in the gross, and a degree of morality in practice, but little if at all superior to that for which we look in a good deist, Muslim, or Hindu. If any one be disposed to deny that this is a fair representation of the religion of the bulk of the Christian world, he might be asked whether if it were proved to them beyond dispute that Christianity is a mere forgery, would this occasion any great change in their conduct or habits of mind? Would any alteration be made in consequence of this discovery, except in a few of their speculative opinions, which, when distinct from practice, it is part of their own system, as has been before remarked, to think of little consequence, and in their attendance on public worship, which, however, knowing the good efforts of religion upon the lower orders of the people, they might still think it better to attend occasionally for example's sake? Would not their regard for their character, their health, their domestic and social comforts, still continue to restrain them from vicious excesses, and to prompt them to persist in the discharge according to their present measure of the various duties of their stations? Would they find themselves dispossessed of what had been to them hitherto the repository of counsel and instruction, the rule of their conduct, their habitual source of peace and hope and consolation? It were needless to put these questions. They are answered in fact already by the lives of many known unbelievers, between whom and these professed Christians, even the familiar associates of both, though men of discernment and observation, would discover little difference either in conduct or temper of mind. How little, then, does Christianity deserve that title to novelty and superiority, which has been almost universally admitted, 
that preeminence as a practical code over all other systems of ethics how unmerited are the praises which have been lavished upon it by its friends praises in which even its enemies not in general disposed to make concessions in its favour have so often been unwarily drawn in to acquiesce was it then for this that the son of god condescended to become our instructor and our pattern leaving us an example that we might tread in his steps was it for this that the apostles of christ voluntarily submitted to hunger and nakedness and pain and ignominy and death when forewarned too by their master that such would be their treatment that after all their disciples should attain to no higher a strain of virtue than those who rejecting their divine authority should still adhere to the old philosophy but it may perhaps be objected that we are forgetting an observation which we ourselves have made that christianity has raised the general standard of morals to which before infidelity herself now finds it prudent to conform availing herself of the pure morality of christianity and sometimes wishing to usurp to herself the credit of it while she stigmatizes the authors with the epitaphs of ignorant dupes or designing impostors but let it then be asked are the motives of christianity so little necessary to the practice of it its principles its conclusions that the one may be spared and yet the other remain in undiminished force still then its doctrines are no more than a barren and inapplicable or at least unnecessary theory the place of which it may be perhaps added would be well supplied by a more simple and less costly scheme but can it be is christianity then reduced to a mere creed is its practical influence bounded within a few external plausibilities does its essence consist only in a few speculative opinions and a few useless and unprofitable tenets and can this be the ground of that portentous distinction which is so unequivocally made by the evangelist between those who accept and those who reject the gospel Quote, he that believeth on the son hath everlasting life and he that believeth not the son shall not see life but the wrath of god abideth in him End quote. this were to run into the very error which the bulk of professed christians would be most forward to condemn of making an unproductive faith the rule of god's future judgment and the ground of an eternal separation thus not unlike the rival circumnavigators from spain and portugal who setting out in contrary directions found themselves in company at the very time they thought themselves farthest from each other so the bulk of professed christians arrive though by a different course almost at the very same point and occupy nearly the same station as a set of enthusiasts who also rest upon a barren faith to whom on the first view they might be thought the most nearly opposite and whose tenets they with reason profess to hold in peculiar detestation by what pernicious courtesy of language it is that this wretched system has been flattered with the name of christianity the morality of the gospel is not so slight a fabric christianity throughout the whole extent exhibits proofs of its divine original and its practical precepts are no less pure than its doctrines are sublime can the compass of language furnish injunctions stricter in their measure or larger in their comprehension than those with which the word of god abounds quote, whatsoever ye do in word or deed do all in the name of the lord jesus christ End quote. Quote, be ye holy for god is holy End quote. Quote, be perfect as your father which is in heaven is perfect End quote. we are commanded to perfect holiness to go on unto perfection such are the scripture admonitions and surely they to whom such admonitions are addressed may not safely acquiesce in low attainments a conclusion to which also we are led by the force of the expressions by which christians are characterized in scripture and by the radical and thorough change which is represented as taking place in any man on his becoming a real christian every one it is said quote, that hath this hope purifieth himself even as god is pure End quote. true christians are said to be quote, partakers of the divine nature End quote. Quote, to be created anew in the image of god End quote. Quote, to be temples of the holy ghost End quote and the effects of which must appear quote, in all goodness and righteousness and truth end quote. 
great as was the progress which the apostle paul had made in all virtue he declares of himself that he still presses forward quote, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth unto the things which are before End quote. he prays for his beloved disciples that they may be filled quote, with the fruits of righteousness that they may walk worthy of the lord unto all pleasing being fruitful in every good work End quote. Nor is it a less pregnant and comprehensive petition which, from our blessed Saviour's inserting it in that form of prayer which he has given as a model for our imitation, we may infer ought to be the habitual sentiment of our hearts, quote, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. End quote. These few extracts from the Word of God will serve abundantly to vindicate the strictness of the Christian morality. But this point will, however, be still more fully established when we proceed to investigate the nature, essence, and governing principles of the Christian character. It is the grand essential practice characteristic of true Christians that relying on the promises to repenting sinners of acceptance through the Redeemer, they have renounced and abjured all other masters, and have cordially and unreservedly devoted themselves to God. This is indeed the very figure which baptism daily represents to us. Like the father of Hannibal, we there bring our infant to the altar, we consecrate him to the service of his proper owner, and vow in his name eternal hostilities against all the enemies of his salvation." after the same manner christians are become the sworn enemies of sin they will henceforth hold no parley with it they will allow it in no shape they will admit it to no composition the war which they have denounced against it is cordial universal irreconcilable but this is not all it is now their determined purpose to yield themselves without reserve to the reasonable service of their rightful sovereign quote, they are not their own end quote their bodily and mental facilities their natural and acquired endowments their substance their authority their time their influence all these they consider as belonging to them not for their own gratification but as so many instruments to be consecrated to the honour and employed in the service of god this must be the master principle to which every other must be subordinate whatever may have been hitherto their ruling passion whatever hitherto their leading pursuit whether sensual or intellectual of science of taste of fancy or of feeling it must now possess but a secondary place or rather to speak more correctly it must exist only at the pleasure and be put altogether under the control and direction of its true and legitimate superior thus it is the prerogative of christianity quote, to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of christ end quote they who really feel its power are resolved in the language of scripture quote, to live no longer to themselves but to him that died for them end quote. they know indeed their own infirmities they know that the way on which they have entered is straight and difficult but they know too the encouraging assurance quote, they who wait on the lord shall renew their strength end quote. and relying on this animating declaration they deliberately purpose that so far as they may be able the grand governing maxim of their future lives shall be quote, to do all to the glory of god End quote. behold here the seminal principle which contains within it as an embryo state the rudiments of all true virtue which striking deep its roots though feeble perhaps and lonely in its beginnings silently progressive and almost insensibly maturing yet will shortly even in the bleak and churlish temperature of this world lift up its head and spread abroad its branches bearing abundant fruits precious fruits of refreshment and consolation of which the boasted products of philosophy are but sickly imitations void of fragrance and flavour but igneus est olis vigor et celestis origo at length it shall be transplanted into its native region and enjoy a more genial climate and a kindlier soil and thus bursting forth into full luxuriance with unfading beauty and unexhausted odours shall flourish for ever in the paradise of god 
but while the servants of christ continue in this life glorious as is the issue of their labours they receive but too many humiliating memorials of their remaining imperfections and they daily find reason to confess that they cannot do the things that they would their determination however is still unshaken and it is the fixed desire of their hearts to improve in all holiness and this let it be observed on many accounts various passions concur to push them forward they are urged on by the dread of failure in this arduous but necessary work they trust not whether all is at stake to lively emotions or to internal impressions however warm the example of christ is their pattern the word of god is their rule there they read that quote, without holiness no man shall see the lord end quote. it is the description of real christians that quote, they are gradually changed into the image of their divine master and they dare not allow themselves to believe their title sure except so far as they can discern in themselves the growing traces of this blessed resemblance it is not merely however the fear of misery and the desire of happiness by which they are actuated in their endeavours to excel in all holiness they love it for its own sake nor is it solely by the sense of self-interest this though often unreasonably condemned is but it must be confessed a principle of an inferior order that they are influenced in their determination to obey the will and to cultivate the favour of god this determination has its foundations indeed in a deep and humiliating sense of his exalted majesty and infinite power and of their own extreme inferiority and littleness attended with the settled conviction of its being their duty as his creatures to submit in all things to the will of the great creator but these awful impressions are relieved and ennobled by an admiring sense of the infinite perfections and infinite amiableness of the divine character animated by a confiding though humble hope of his fatherly kindness and protection and quickened by the grateful recollection of immense and continually increasing obligations this is the christian love of god a love compounded of admiration of preference of hope of trust of joy chastised by reverential awe and wakeful with continual gratitude i would here express myself with caution lest i should inadvertently wound the heart of some weak but sincere believer the elementary principles which have been above enumerated may exist in various degrees and proportions a difference in natural disposition in the circumstances of the past life and in numberless other particulars may occasion a great difference in the predominant tempers of different christians in one the love in another the fear of god may have the ascendancy trust in one and in another gratitude but in greater or less degree a cordial complacency in the sovereign an exalted sense of the perfections a grateful impression of the goodness and a humble hope of the favour of the divine being are common to them all common the determination to devote themselves without exceptions to the service and glory of god common the desire of holiness and of continual progress towards perfection common an abasing consciousness of their own unworthiness and of their many remaining infirmities which interpose so often to corrupt the simplicity of their intentions to thwart the execution of their purer purposes and frustrate the resolution of their better hours but some perhaps who will not directly and in the gross oppose the conclusions for which we have been contending may endeavour to elude them it may be urged that to represent them as of general application is going much too far and however true in the case of some individuals of a higher order it may be asserted that they are not applicable to ordinary christians from these so much will not surely be expected and here perhaps there may be a secret reference to that supposed mitigation of the requisitions of the divine law under the christian dispensation which was formerly noticed this is so important a point that it ought not to be passed over let us call in the authority of scripture at the same time not to tire the patience of our readers but a few passages shall be cited and we must refer to the word of god itself those who wish for fuller satisfaction the difficulty here is not to find proofs but to select with discrimination from the multiple which pour in upon us 
here also as in former instances the positive injunctions of scripture are confirmed and illustrated by various considerations and inferences suggesting by other parts of the sacred writings all tending to the same infallible conclusion in the first place the precepts are expressed in the broadest and most general terms there is no hint given that any persons are at liberty to conceive themselves exempted from the obligation of them and in any who are disposed to urge such a plea of exemption it may well excite the most serious apprehension to consider how the plea would be received on an earthly tribunal no weak argument this is to any who are acquainted with the scriptures and who know how often god is there represented as reasoning with mankind on the principles which they have established for their dealings with each other but in the next place the precepts in question contain within themselves abundant proofs of their universal application inasmuch as they are grounded on circumstances and relations common to all christians and of the benefits of which even our objectors themselves though they would evade the practical deductions from them would not be willing to relinquish their share christians quote, are not their own end quote, because quote, they are bought with a price end quote. they are not quote, to live unto themselves but to him that died for them end quote they are commanded to do the most difficult duties quote, that they may be the children of their father which is in heaven end quote. and quote, except a man be born again of the spirit end quote, thus again becoming one of the sons of god he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven end quote. it is quote, because they are sons end quote, that god has given them what in scripture language is styled the spirit of adoption it is only of quote, as many as are led by the spirit of god end quote, that it is declared that quote, they are the sons of god End quote. and we are expressly warned in order as it were to prevent any such loose profession of christianity as that which we are combating quote, if any man have not the spirit of christ he is none of his End quote. in short christians in general are everywhere denominated the servants and the children of god and are required to serve him with that submissive obedience and that affectionate promptitude of duty which belong to those endearing relations estimate next the force of that well-known passage quote, thou shalt love the lord thy god with all thy heart and with all thy mind and with all thy soul and with all thy strength the injunction is multiplied on us as it were to silence the sophistry of the cavaller and to fix the most inconsiderate mind and though for the sake of argument we should concede for the present that under the qualifications formerly suggested an ardent and vigorous affection were not indispensably required of us yet surely if the words have any meaning at all the least which can be intended by them is that settled predominant esteem and cordial preference for which we are now contending the conclusion which this passage forces on us is strikingly confirmed by other parts of the scripture wherein the love of god is positively commended to the whole of a christian church wherein the want of it or wherein its not being the chief and ruling affection is charged on persons professing themselves christians as being sufficient to disprove their claim to that appellation or as being equivalent to denying it footnote second timothy chapter three verse four let not therefore any deceive themselves by imagining that only an absolute unqualified renunciation of the desire of the favour of god is here condemned god will not accept of a divided affection a single heart and a single eye are in express terms declared to be indispensably required of us we are ordered under the figure of amassing heavenly treasure to make the favour and service of god our chief pursuit for this very reason because quote, where our treasure is there our hearts will be also End quote it is on this principle that in speaking of particular vices such phrases are often used in scripture as suggest that their criminality mainly consists in drawing away the heart from him who is the just object of its preference and that sins which we might think very differently in criminality are classed together because they all agree in this character 
nor is this preference asserted only over affections which are vicious in themselves and to which christianity might well be supposed hostile but over those also which in their just measure are not only lawful but even more strongly enjoined on us quote, he that loveth father and mother more than me end quote, says our blessed saviour is not worthy of me end quote. Quote, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me end quote. matthew chapter ten verse thirty seven the spirit of these injunctions harmonizes with many commendations in scripture of zeal for the honour of god as well as with that strong expression of disgust and abhorrence with which the lukewarm those that are neither cold nor hot are spoken of as being more loathsome and offensive than even open and avowed enemies another class of instances tending to the same point is furnished by those many passages of scripture wherein the prompting of the glory of god is commanded as our supreme and universal aim and wherein the honour due unto him is declared to be that in which he will allow no competitor to participate on this head indeed the holy scriptures are if possible more peremptory than on the former and at the same time so full as to render particular citations unnecessary in the case of any one who has ever so little acquaintance with the word of god to put the same thing therefore in another light all who have read the scriptures must confess that idolatry is the crime against which god's highest resentment is expressed and his severest punishment denounced but let us not deceive ourselves it is not in bowing the knee to idols that idolatry consists so much as the internal homage of the heart as in the feelings towards them of any of that supreme love or reverence or gratitude which god reserves to himself as his own exclusive prerogative on the same principle whatever else draws off the heart from him engrosses our prime regard and holds the chief place in our esteem and affections that in the estimation of reason is no less an idol to us than an image of wood or stone would be before which we would fall down and worship think not this a strained analogy it is the very language and argument of inspiration the servant of god is commanded not to set up his idol in his heart and sensuality and covetousness are repeatedly termed idolatry the same god who declares quote, my glory i will not give to another neither my praise to graven images end quote, declares also quote, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom neither let the mighty man glory in his might let not the rich man glory in his riches end quote. jeremiah chapter nine verse twenty three no flesh may glory in his presence end quote. Quote, he that glorieth let him glory in the lord end quote the sudden vengeance by which the vainglorious ostentation of herod was punished when acquiescing in the servile adulation of an admiring multitude quote, he gave not god the glory quote, is a dreadful comment on those injunctions these awful declarations it is to be feared are little regarded let the great and the wise and the learned and the successful lay them seriously to heart and labour habitually consider them their superiority whether derived from nature or study or fortune as the unmerited bounty of god this reflection will naturally tend to produce disposition instead of that proud self-complacency so apt to grow in the heart of men in all respects opposite to it a disposition honourable to god and useful to man a temper composed of reverence humility and gratitude and delighting to be engaged in the praises and employed in the benevolent services of the universal benefactor but to return to our subject it only remains to be remarked that here as in the former instances the characters of the righteous and of the wicked as delineated in scripture exactly correspond with the representations which have been given of the scripture injunctions the necessity of this cordial unreserved devotedness to the glory and service of god as being indispensable to the character of the true christian has been insisted on at the greater length not only on account of its own extreme importance but also because it appears to be a duty too generally overlooked once well established it will serve as a fundamental principle both for the government of the heart and the regulation of the conduct 
and will prove eminently useful in the decision of many practical cases which it might be difficult to bring under the undisputed operation of any subordinate or appropriate rule. End of chapter 4, section 1